This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee uh, will come to order. For many exiles, human rights defenders, journalists, and civil society activists around the world, it takes incredible courage to speak out against autocrats. Both friends and foes send their agents across borders to hunt down and harass critics, even here on U.S. soil. We've seen disturbing allegations against an Indian government official for involvement in planning to assassinate a U.S. citizen in New York who was critical of the Indian government. This follows allegations of Indians' involvement in the killing of a Canadian Sikh leader earlier this year. The Modi government had labeled both critics as terrorists. Transnational repression is not new, but modern technologies have expanded the government's reach like never before. One of the most sophisticated global campaigns of transnational repression comes from the People's Republic of China. Of course, they deny this. They have said, and I quote, the accusations of transnational repression is totally made out of thin air. But tell that to the Olympic figure skater whose father participated in Tiananmen Square protests, or the Asian American Army veteran who ran for Congress in New York, or the Radio Free Asia journalist who lives in Virginia. Beijing targeted all of them and their family members, trying to get tax records, installing cameras in their home, stalking them, imprisoning their family back in China. But it's not just China. Chechen leader told those who opposed him, quote, this modern age and technology allows us to know everything, and we can find any of you. His patron, President Putin, is just as brutal in his persecution of opponents. He sends his hit squads there to those he calls scum and traitors. So I want to begin this hearing by thanking our witnesses, not just for coming to speak to us about this absolutely critical issue, but for your bravery and courage in the face of these attacks. And I'm going to have more to say about each one of our witnesses. This is a distinguished panel that have been in the forefront of the fight for human rights. And we thank you very much for your courage. And we particularly thank you for being with us today to share what we can do in regards to this important issue. Your continued dedication to defending human rights and democracy is an inspiration. As you all know, this is a deadly, serious threat to the safety of diaspora and exile communities. They use slander and libel laws to attack human rights defenders in court. They threaten the family members of dissidents who still live back home. And as, you all, as, and as you know, they have no problem physically assaulting or even killing to make their point. This oppression is not only felt by the direct victims of the agents of these regimes, by going after one or two critics, they send a message to the entire exile community. You're never safe anywhere, not even if you are in a democratic nation, not even if you have political asylum. That's what makes transnational repression so chilling. It forces many to stop speaking out or end their activism altogether. Whether it's China, Russia, Iran, or Tajikistan, these countries threaten human rights defenders all over the world. That is why I wrote to the president of Tajikistan expressing my concerns regarding his treatment of political opponents. And that's why I led the Transnational Repression Accountability and Prevention Act to increase transparency about these regimes' abuse of Interpol red notices to get local law enforcement to arrest critics. But more is needed. In the coming days, I will be introducing the International Freedom Protection Act. This will address the growing use of transnational oppression by autocratic and illiberal states.
I look forward to working with all the colleagues of this committee, Democrats and Republicans, on this legislation. It's now my pleasure to turn it over to our, my distinguished colleague, Ranking Member Senator Risch. Well, Mr. Chairman, thank you for that, and, and thank you for your leadership in this particular area. Most Americans are not familiar with the term transnational uh, repression. It's not a household term or a household phrase, but Americans understand the concept. Transnational repression occurs when authoritarian governments go beyond their borders to harass and intimidate their citizens, those who defend human rights abroad or anyone they consider to be a threat to their regimes. Governments who have gotten away with silencing dissident inside their own country are now trying to stifle free speech around the world, including the United States. Just last week, the Department of Justice, as the chairman referred to, unsealed an indictment alleging an Indian government official engaged in a plot to assassinate a U.S. citizen in New York City. It should surprise no one that China is leading the world in using transnational repression to quash any sign of dissent. Last month, pro uh, CCP, uh, Chinese Communist Party protesters uh, funded by the Chinese consulate, harassed and assaulted human rights advocates on U.S. soil at APEC in San Francisco. The failure of the administration and the city government to prevent or even respond to these attacks is deeply unfortunate. The administration prioritized a smooth meeting with Xi, Xi Jinping over addressing this issue publicly. Hong Kong authorities are increasingly engaged in acts of transnational repression. This fall, Hong Kong authorities issued bounties for political dissidents who left the city, some of whom were seeking asylum in the United States. Uh, prominent Hong Kong uh, uh, businessman Jimmy Lee remains unjustly imprisoned while the CCP harasses uh, his international legal team. I look forward to hearing directly from Ms. Gallagher on that matter today. Beyond Asia, it is clear the legacy of Soviet tyranny looms large in Eurasia. Russia sends its operatives to poison, intimidate, and sometimes assassinate members of the opposition and dissidents in exile. A few years ago, the Russians actually shot a man in the head in a public park uh, in Germany in broad daylight. They also poisoned a man in a park in England in 2018, which uh, a lot of us, of course, are very familiar with. There's no boundaries that they will respect, and that is clear. Our NATO ally, Turkey, is also a top offender. While it has decried acts of transnational repression that takes place on its soil, it has also used these same tactics to suppress Turkish dissidents outside of the country. This is evidenced by its pursuit of members of the Gulenist movement, uh, including former NBA player and his uh, contour of freedom, who has had his Turkish passport canceled while abroad. Uh, Interpol red alerts issued for his arrest and threats so aggressive the FBI has issued him a call button. The Iranian regime is another egregious yet unsurprising offender. It targets dissidents and critics abroad to include uh, murder and kidnapping plots against Americans on U.S. soil. As, country, as countries fail to push back on these increasingly brazen actions that undermine sovereignty and national security, perpetrators grow more emboldened and additional countries adopt similar tactics. I look forward to hearing from our witnesses today on what more can be done to stop this egregious practice. And in particular, I want to hear what we, as the United States government, can do about it. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, Senator Durish. As, as I indicated, we have a really distinguished group of, of panelists today that have really um, 
seen firsthand the consequences of these actions. So today we're honored to welcome Mr. Christo Grusoff, an award-winning investigative journalist and co-founder of the investigative outlet Bellingcat Productions. Through his investigative work, he has exposed numerous Russian plots and assassinations, including identifying the suspect responsible for the poisoning of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. This bravery earned him the European Press Prize for Investigative Reporting in 2019 and the Nanum Prize in 2021. In retaliation for his investigations into the activities of President Putin's Russia, he has experienced intimidation, surveillance, break-ins, and thefts, with Russia ordering his arrest in Estancia earlier this year. Despite these threats, he has admirably persisted in his work. Welcome. We are also welcoming Michael Abramowitz, the president of Freedom House, an organization that's been, uh, been critical in shedding a light on transnational repression and broader threats to democracy globally. Mr. Abramowitz has demonstrated his deep commitment to supporting freedom and democracy around the world through his illustrious career, which includes leading the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum's Divine Institute for Holocaust Education, and 24 years at the Washington Post, in which I've, uh, he covered many of my activities in the state legislature and in the Congress, and I don't hold any grudges. It's nice to have you here, Mr. Ronowitz. I'm also honored to welcome uh, Ms. Keelone Gallagher, a human rights and civil liber liberties lawyer currently serving as the international legal counsel to the pro-democracy businessman and publisher Jimmy Lai through her career. Uh, Ms. Gallagher has represented many journalists, activists, and human rights defenders. For, for years, the Pe People's Republic of China and Hong Kong authorities have targeted her for her work on Mr. Lai's case, including through death and rape threats, cyber attacks, and threats of prosecution and extradition to Hong Kong. Despite these attacks, Ms. Gallagher bravely continues to seek justice for Mr. Lai. So welcome to all. Uh, Mr. Rusoff, we'll start off with you. Your full testimonies will be made part of our record. You may proceed as you wish. We would appreciate if you would summarize in approximately five minutes. Um, I assume I should go first? Yes. Thank you very much. Uh, dear Chairman, Honorable Committee Members, uh, let me start by asserting that the notion of exclusively domestic repression is a misconception in my view. Any bad regime, um, if left unchecked in the pursuit of suppressing domestic competitors, critics, or simply inconvenience, will ultimately extend its repressive machinery across its borders. And we've seen that happen with Russia. Initially directed towards its own citizens globally, the separatists ultimately will target anyone, uh, whatever nationality, perceived to obstruct their pursuit of internal, eternal authority. Over the course of almost a decade, I and my investigative partners have scrutinized Russia's repressive operations, encompassing both judicial and extrajudicial methods against its own citizens. Our investigative team, comprised of my former colleagues from Bellingcat, the insider in Russia, and their Spiegel in Germany, laid bare a systemic and industrial-scale operation of repressions. This apparatus targets hundreds of Russian political activists, journalists, and former intelligence officers who have turned or perceived to be have turned against the regime. The overarching objective of these repressive operations appeared to be either assassination or intimidation through the threat of assassination of these activists. While our initial belief was that these repressive measures exclusively target Russian citizens or former Russian citizens, 
we saw a much broader scope. Um, notable instances of the former include the poisoning of Russian activists on Russian soil, such as Vladimir Karamurza, an American resident who was poisoned twice, the near-fatal poisoning of Alexei Navalny in August 2020. Beyond Russia's borders, individuals like Sergei Skripal and his daughter, Yulia, barely survived the Novichok poisoning by a group of GRU spies in Salisbury. An innocent and random British woman became an unintended victim of this bungled operation. Additionally, at least seven men of Chechen origin we've investigated and have found to have been killed by under, undercover agents of FSB's Vimpel unit in Turkey and Germany, as the co-chairman uh, referred to earlier. As our investigations unfolded, it became apparent that Russia's assassination and intimidation attempts were not confined to Russian nationals alone. In 2015, we discovered that a group of GRU spies poisoned and almost killed the Bulgarian arms manufacturer simply for supplying defensive munitions to Ukraine. In the past 12 months alone, my Russian investigative partner Roman Dobrohotov and I have become targets of both judicial and extrajudicial persecution. Roman's residence in Moscow was subject to a police raid in front of his minor children, and he narrowly escaped um, arrest and uh, uh, essentially defected or ran out from Russia under the nose of approaching FSB operatives. Last Christmas, I found myself on Russia's most wanted list with a succinct explanation of my crime. Wanted for a crime, without specifics, depriving me of any opportunity for a defense. Just a month later, law enforcement agencies advised me against my return from the United States to Austria, where I live, citing a clear and present danger posed by clandestine Russian intelligence operation targeting both me and my colleague Roman. I discovered that Russian intelligence officers had surveilled and tailed Roman and me for nearly two years, monitoring all of our movements and awaiting the opportune moment to strike. Regrettably, I'm not at liberty to disclose specifics of this operation as the case is currently under official investigation in several countries. My, as well as Roman's, work as journalists have been severely restricted by this. We have to stick to our new accidental domiciles, myself in the United States and Roman in the United Kingdom. The constraints on travel for work or leisure with our families persist, as uncertainty looms regarding which country may choose to enforce Kremlin's request for extradition. In the past year alone, Kremlin's transnational repressive operations have seen a surge both in frequency and audacity. Judicially, or within whatever Russia calls justice, arrest warrants have been issued for, uh, or, or are pending to be issued for U.S. journalist Masha Gessen and Facebook spokesperson Andy Stone. Similarly to my case, Andy stands accused of a crime, leaving the world befuddled about what the crime is. These measures, however, pale in comparison to Kremlin's extrajudicial operations against Russian journalists opposing the war. In the past year, at least three women, two journalists and one political activist, have exhibited signs of poisoning with prohibited chemical weapons. These cases involving Elena Kostyuchenko, Irina Babluyan, and Natalia Arnaud, which we have investigated with our colleagues at The Insider, remain unresolved, but aligned with Russia's methods. Our investigation has exposed the infiltration by GRU, Russia's military intelligence, of Russian human rights groups abroad, diaspora organizations. In a recent case, we discovered involved an undercover GRU officer infiltrating human rights organizations and seeking proximity to Garry Kasparov, another outspoken critic of Putin's regime. The fallacy of domestic-only repression is evident. Russia's regime has been permitted to persecute its opponents domestically without legal consequences for decades. Adhering to the outdated principle of legal sovereignty, 
civilized countries abstain from conducting independent judicial inquiries into incidents such as the poisoning of Karam Rosar Navalny, the assassination of Boris Nemtsov, and many others. Russian colleagues and activists have long shouted at us and at Western leaders against handshaking and dancing at weddings with Putin, cautioning against energy deals with that embolden him while he suppresses dissent domestically. Unfortunately, Western leaders only heeded these warnings when Putin invaded the neighboring country. And there is a risk of these leaders growing wary amongst the protected war and shaking hands soon again. Only today, Putin arrived in Dubai to artillery salute, and this is victory for him. It is imperative for us to acknowledge that as long as rogue states like Russia benefit from judicial sovereignty over its own people, they remain incentivized to treat the rest of the world as a playing ground for pursuing their so-called national interest against an ever-expanding list of targets. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much for your testimony. We appreciate it. Mr. Bromwitz. Chairman Cardin, uh, Ranking Member Risch, uh, it's an honor to testify uh, today. Transnational repression occurs when states reach across borders to silence dissent from activists, journalists, and others living in exile, often using intimidation and violence. This phenomenon is not new, but has been made easier by the scale of global migration and modern technologies that allow governments to monitor critics beyond their borders. From 2014 through 2022, Freedom House has collected information on 854 direct physical cases of transnational repression, and this includes assassination, kidnapping, assault, detention, or deportations. These have been committed by 38 governments in 91 countries. These numbers are likely only the tip of the iceberg, as states are also using indirect tactics to intimidate activists in exile through use of spyware, surveillance, threats sent over, sent over social media, or threats against their family members back home. The top 10 perpetrators in our assessment are China, Turkey, Tajikistan, Egypt, Russia, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Iran, Belarus, and Rwanda. These 10 countries are responsible for 80% of the cases in our database, and China is responsible for fully 30% of the cases. In the last several years, as my colleague just uh, outlined, we have seen brazen measures to intimidate and silence exile. A prominent case involves a failed Iranian plot to kidnap journalist and women's rights activist Masi Alinejad from home in Brooklyn. Iran also attempted an assassination that was also unsuccessful. Alinejad now lives under federal protection. Just weeks ago, a group of activists were physically assaulted in San Francisco during the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit while protesting human rights violations by Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party. It's not only authoritarian governments accused of transnational oppression, as Senators Rish and Cardin pointed out. The Canadian Prime Minister has implicated the government of India in the June murder of a Sikh activist and a Canadian citizen in Canada. And just last week, the Department of Justice alleged in an indictment that an Indian national in India was hired by an Indian government official to orchestrate the assassination of a U.S. citizen who is a Sikh activist. The impact of transnational oppression on targeted individuals is severe. People's physical safety is endangered, their travel is complicated, their houses are surveilled in the U.S. and elsewhere, they're harassed online and offline, and communication with family and friends living in the country of origin is fraught. The impact on journalists is, is especially noteworthy, as the space for free media and dissent has closed 
in authoritarian countries, governments are increasingly reaching outward to target exiled journalists who continue to do their vital work from abroad. We have a new report just out today that we've shared with the committee that describes the repressive toolkit used against targeted exiled journalists in the media. At least 26 governments have targeted journalists, and 112 of our 50, 854 cases in our database involve journalists. We urge Congress to strengthen the U.S. response to transnational repression and ensure that the U.S. has the tools needed to protect those within our borders for years to come. Transnational repression is a direct attack on our security and rights. First, Congress should pass legislation to address gaps in the U.S. government's response to transnational oppression. This includes codifying a definition of transnational oppression, ensuring government officials who may encounter perpetrators or victims of transnational oppression receive the training necessary to recognize and respond to the problem, and strengthening sanctions authorities to make it easier to hold perpetrators accountable. The Transnational Repression Policy Act, which was introduced by Senators Merkley, Rubio, Cardin, and Haggerty, includes provisions in all these areas, and we urge its passage. Second, Congress should establish clear pathways for exiled human rights defenders to receive permanent legal status when needed. Democratic governments should consider appropriate mechanisms, including providing special visas, such as humanitarian visas or visas for human rights defenders, activists, and journalists, to help them receive legal status and should ensure those individuals are not being denied legal status as a result of illegitimate criminal charges leveled against them by origin country governments. Finally, Congress should urge the executive branch to continue to raise transnational oppression as a priority issue with our partners and allies. The United States must not hesitate to raise this issue directly at the highest levels with those countries perpetrating transnational repression, even when those perpetrators are close partners, such as Saudi Arabia and India. Transnational repression is a violation of rights and sovereignty and breaks the bond of trust that must exist for deep cooperation between nations. Whether a government engages in transnational repression should be a factor, a significant factor, determining the nature of bilateral relations and the closeness of any partnership. Thank you for your time, and I look forward to your questions. Uh, thank you for your testimony. Mrs. Gallagher? Thank you, Chairman. Thank you very much, Chairman Cordon and Ranking Member Rich, and thank you for casting a light on this vitally important issue of transnational repression. In my time today, I wish to focus upon two countries, Iran and China. First, I want to look at something I'm increasingly seeing in my work as an international lawyer, the extraterritorial targeting of Iranian journalists worldwide. And second, I want to give the very stark example in Hong Kong of transnational repression and reprisals against those supporting Jimmy Lai, my client, uh, the renowned pro-democracy campaigner, media owner and writer imprisoned in Hong Kong. And indeed, this hearing is timely. Mr Lai turned 76 this Friday. It's approaching the third anniversary of him being in custody consistently since December 2020. And on the 18th of December, he's facing a trial under the much maligned, rightly much maligned, national security law. But that's an example of not only diaspora and exiled communities being targeted by the Chinese and Hong Kong authorities, but anyone who dares to stand up and speak for Mr Lai's rights. Now, those examples illustrate that the nature of the threats faced by those who speak truth to power is changing, and the actions we take to combat those threats must change too, and change urgently. So first example, Iran's targeting of journalists globally. I've given you more detail in my written testimony, but in brief, I would say this. It's often said that journalists don't want to become the story. 
But I'm afraid, given Iran's actions, today we must discuss journalist stories. Iran has a long, shameful history of targeting journalists on its own soil, arresting them, accusing them of espionage simply for doing their jobs. Those tactics have been used for many decades. But I now see four new developments which are particularly troubling. First, Iran using tactics which are routinely cross-border, targeting those using the long arm of the state who work as journalists anywhere across the world, including Voice of America here, BBC News Persian in the UK, Iran International, Deutsche Welle, Radio Farda. And it attempts to silence them both through lawfare, weaponizing Iranian laws, and a range of extra-legal tactics. Second, and importantly as the only woman on the panel, I wanted to highlight the fact that many of Iran's transnational attacks on journalists are gendered and misogynistic. Women journalists face particularly egregious transnational attacks. I want to give two examples of that. Uh, first, uh, with my client's BBC News Persian, uh, one involved a presenter being photoshopped into a pornographic image, which was then sent to her 14-year-old son in London at his school particularly chilling, demonstrates that they know where he goes to school, sent to his headmaster. A second is fake stories stating that a BBC News Persian presenter had been raped by a colleague known to Iranian audiences, and a fake photo blog was produced uh, showing her with her illegitimate child. And later her father was hauled in and interrogated by authorities in Iran, where he lived, Officers told him that she'd hidden this from her family. She was so embarrassed about having been raped by a colleague. A third tactic is that Iran's also now using collective punishment of those connected to those journalists in Iran. So they combine external tactics outside Iran with internal tactics in Iran to target family members and sources. And fourth, Iran's conduct against journalists has escalated to include routine and regular credible threats to life, including the kidnapping of a French journalist in exile, Ruhol Azam, him being returned to Iran and executed. And indeed, we've seen now in the last year in particular individual chilling examples morphing to become a systematic tool in the Iranian authorities' global toolbox. And the committee may be particularly interested in the analysis done by another one of my clients, Paul Caruana Galizia, the journalist, in a series for Tortoise, specifically about Iran's transnational tactics. In February of this year, the UK's security services, MI5, revealed that UK authorities had discovered at least 15 threats to kidnap or kill British or UK-based individuals perceived as enemies of the Iranian regime since January 2022. That's 15 in 13 months, more than one a month. And it's why Iran International had to suspend their operations in the UK and be based solely from Washington, because they couldn't be protected adequately by UK authorities. Next example I want to turn to, and I'm happy to answer more questions about this also, concerns China and Hong Kong. And... It's little wonder that since the passing of the national security law, a number of states suspended their extradition arrangements and recognised that Hong Kong was now trying to use the long arm of the state to silence critics around the world. Because the NSL, of course, is dangerously vague and broad. Virtually anything can be deemed a threat to national security under its provisions. It can apply to anyone on the planet. We saw a very grave escalation earlier this year with the bounties on the heads of eight exiled activists and language being used by John Lee calling them uh, street rats 
and saying that they would be hunted down and pursued for life. Uh, but I want to give a specific example about Jimmy Lai. Earlier this year, this committee heard from his son, Sebastian. And Sebastian himself, simply for campaigning for his father, for leading the free Jimmy Lai campaign, has been targeted himself. He has been threatened in state media. He's been interrupted when he addressed the Human Rights Council in Geneva in June 2023. He's been, it's been made clear to him that if he ever returns to Hong Kong, he himself may be criminalised. My colleagues and I, as members of the international legal team for Jimmy Lai and Sebastian Lai, have been subjected to a range of actions. And importantly, none of us are Hong Kongers. None of us are in exile. None of us are dissidents. We are international lawyers working for our clients, seeking to hold China and Hong Kong to account for flagrant violations of Jimmy Lai's fundamental rights protected by international law. And what we're experiencing doesn't come anywhere close to the most extreme examples you've heard about today. But just before I conclude, I want to just highlight four tactics used against us. First, attacks in Chinese-affiliated state media directed at me particularly as leader of the team, but also importantly directed at Jimmy Lai. And the suggestion is that Jimmy Lai, by instructing international lawyers, by his case being brought to the United Nations, is in collusion with me, engaging with a foreign agent and committing further criminal offences, that I am also committing criminal offences. It's outrageous to think that by using mechanisms established internationally to hold states to account for violating international law, both Jimmy Lai and we as his lawyers can be accused of being criminals. Um, second, we've seen formal statements from the Hong Kong authorities accusing us of committing criminal offences for doing our jobs, our crime, being lawyers, doing our jobs. A third, we've had an extensive and prolonged campaign of hacking attempts and cyber harassment, much of which has also been misogynistic and sexist, distressing and frightening, including multiple death, rape, dismemberment threats to me, threats to my family members. And the timing and content of those attacks are plainly designed to stop me doing my job as Jimmy Lai's lawyer. They come thick and fast on key days for the case. I woke up this morning to 17 different rape and death threats on a day when I'm giving evidence before this committee. And it also includes spying attempts, which are sophisticated and concerning and often involve privilege fishing, if I can put it that way, seeking to obtain legally privileged, sensitive information about clients or others. And I'm happy to answer further questions on that. It's also involved intimidatory physical uh, surveillance. Now, that campaign by China, Hong Kong, to silence dissent and critical voices and to shut down scrutiny of international, international scrutiny of their actions is comprehensive and sophisticated. It doesn't just extend within its own borders to individuals such as Jimmy Lai. It doesn't just extend to those who the Hong Kong authorities erroneously describe as self-exiled, such as the individuals with the bounties. It extends to anyone, anywhere in the world, who dares to question their narrative regardless of their nationality. And these are deeply concerning issues, and I thank the committee for casting a light on them today, and I'm happy to answer further questions. Well, let me again thank all three of you. This is chilling information you're presenting to us. Um, I think we know what's happening, but it's when we hear it spelled out the way you all have laid it out, it really does present a, a, a damning situation where transnational repression is really eating at the core of our own democracy because many of the victims are being prosecuted 
because of participating here in the United States in our open society. Uh, that is a, a direct attack at our system of government. And it compromises our ability to get objective information. I think of Kara Mursa, who's currently in prison in Russia. Uh, he was indicted and sent to prison because of his activities here in the United States and informing our committees about what was happening in Russia. That's why he was in prison, poisoned a couple times, survived that, but now is lingering in, in, in prison. I think of Sergei Magnitsky and uh, bringing that cause here to the United States by Bill Browder. Both of, of course, Sergei Magnitsky was arrested, tortured, and killed, and Bill Browder is, is under indictment in Russia. Uh, and so I think about so many of these cases that are really aimed at what is happening here in the United States. I have a constituent, um, uh, uh, Muyai Ghazi, from Rwanda, who, uh, because of a speech he gave in 2006, critical of what was happening in Rwanda, he was sentenced to 14 years in prison in Rwanda for what he said here in the United States, just open speech. So it really does affect our system. So we know that, uh, and Mr. Grusoff, uh, you are at risk. We recognize that in travel. We saw that with Bill Browder with red notice through Interpol, that you could be picked up by a democratic state because of the obligations under the Interpol system on red notice. You know, we're trying to correct some of those issues but it seems to me we've got to be much more aggressive uh, because you're at risk. You're at risk here, but you're certainly at risk if you travel. And uh, I appreciate Mr. Abramowitz giving us a, a roadmap of some things that we can do, but tell us more effectively how we can help you. you know, we, we put a spotlight on these issues. We don't, we don't hide from this. We want, we want to give you a platform. We want the, the world to know what is happening. But what more can we do to protect particularly our two people that are here that are on basically frontline soldiers in this campaign? What else would you like to see the United States Senate do? I would um, just take a minute to suggest that the United States can take a more leading coordinating role in helping law enforcement across Europe, for example. Many of the crimes against uh, many of the examples of transnational aggression do not happen on American territory. Um, the Russians, for example, would not dare, uh, usually by the old rules, nobody knows what the new rules are, but the old rules of the game, they would not dare attack somebody on American territory, uh, at least not physically, but they do it in Europe. And you have to understand that this is an organized crime group called uh, a country, and uh, as, as the late John McCain used to call them. And they operate like an organized crime group with operations in different countries, but no one country has this, the vision of how they operate as a whole. And somebody needs to take the initiative to help the government of the Czech Republic or the government of Germany or of Austria to complete the puzzle of understanding how these operations are conducted. And therefore, investigations against such prospective or committed crimes against journalists and activists must be coordinated on a transnational scale. So transnational crime must be fought with transnational measures, and that we do not see that happening. So I think the United States can allocate resources, and maybe the Senate can help with that, to, for such a coordinating body that actually advises and coordinates different law enforcement agents across the world. Thanks for that suggestion. Mrs. Gallagher, any 
suggestions? What would you like to see us do? Yeah, thank you. And Mr Chairman, may I start by saying uh, I don't at all put myself in the same category of frontline worker in the way that Christo uh, Grozev is. Indeed, the person who's really in the front line is my client, Jimmy Lai. And ultimately, the reason that these secondary transnational tactics are being used against Sebastian Lai for speaking out for his father or against us as the lawyers uh, is because it's another weapon with which to target, ultimately, Jimmy Lai himself. Um, so I, I just want to emphasise that. Um, I do think there are a number of actions which could be taken. The first thing is that the enemies of freedom are sophisticated and coordinated. And I think we need to be much more sophisticated and coordinated in how we deal with these tactics. We have seen the US government, uh, with the role that it's taken on hostage-taking and arbitrary detention of US nationals abroad, creating the role of special envoy, so that you have some muscle memory in a centralised place where you can look at the tactics that are used about arbitrary detention and hostage-taking in Iran, in Rwanda, in Egypt, and so on. And it seems to me that an equivalent centralised-type role in relation to transnational repression uh, could be very important and powerful. Because what I find in these cases is, when I'm dealing with transnational repression in cases concerning Saudi Arabia, for example, I deal with official in, officials in multiple countries who are starting with a blank sheet of paper and who simply don't know the tactics that you then see when you're dealing with, for example, China, Russia, Iran. So it seems to me uh, internalised, centralised coordination could lead to more sophisticated policy making in this field and the US would be well placed to take a leadership role in relation to that. Similarly, in many countries in which uh, I act, in which there is transnational repression and indeed as a victim of it myself in the UK, I often find that police forces aren't centralised. So you get some tactics, for example, which are picked up because someone complains to their local police force in Nottingham. That's something that's happened with China uh, uh, for people working in relation to Hong Kong issues, where some academic in the north of England have complained to, their complained to their local police force and there's no centralised knowledge base where people can go. So I think democratic states who are experiencing this just need to get more sophisticated in looking at having a centralised way of dealing with it. I also think it's important that we tackle the bank carriers who are facilitating this happening. Now, some of that may involve, in a case like Rwanda was mentioned uh, by Michael earlier, in the case of Paul Rosasa-Begina, uh, the way in which he was kidnapped and brought to Rwanda did involve a European Union-registered airline company with a private jet picking him up in Dubai and bringing him to Rwanda uh, in a kidnap attempt. Now, it seems to me we need to look at what action is taken in relation to a private company, a European Union company, which facilitates that. In relation to Hong Kong, what do we do about companies and other entities who are unwitting or otherwise involved uh, in these actions? Now, some of them are witting bad carriers, but some of them are unwitting. And in that, I would highlight the role of tech companies who often are used for cyber harassment and don't have very sophisticated ways of dealing with it. Thank you very much. Senator Risch. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, uh, first line of questioning uh, from uh, Mr. Grosset. I'm uh, always struck that every time we see a Russian poisoning case, uh, they use the same poison all the time, it seems like, and it's also one that is easily identifiable uh, and traced back to the, uh, to the uh, FSB or, or one of their agencies. I'm assuming this is done to send a message as much as anything else, that uh, they're, they're doing this and they're not trying to do it secretly. They, they want people to understand what they've done. 
Am I right in that uh, in that assessment? That is a, a, a good of a, an analysis as anyone. We don't know what exactly is in their head, but my conclusion is that they have an optional approach. They are trying to um, use a weapon that um, they can continually uh, improve over the years and invest millions and millions in making more efficient uh, on the hope that um, it may remain undiscovered. But in the case it gets discovered, it has, it has such a scary reputation that it achieves a different outcome, which is fear and intimidation. So they win from their point of view either way. If it remains undiscovered, they win. If it gets discovered and it points to them, they also win. They have zero reputation cost, and thus you're right that they don't mind being discovered. Well, and on top of that, the Russians are notorious that uh, when they do get caught red-handed, whatever they're doing, they just lie about it. A good example, that's the, the invasion of Ukraine. They get on TV all the time and say, well, we, this wasn't our fault. The, you know, America did this. America caused this. It just, it's, it's phenomenal that, uh, that they can do that, and, and yet uh, people shrug their shoulders and walk away from it. So anyway, well, listen, for all three of you, I, I have a question uh, that I'd like to, uh, perhaps a general answer, and time's limited, so if you'd give me as brief an answer as you could, I would appreciate it. I think we're at a point on the planet where countries are deciding which club they're going to belong to. Is it a freedom and democracy and a, and a, a government that is created by the people and operated by the people and, and disciplined by the people? Or, or is it a dictatorship, an autocracy? And of course, the two governments operate very, very differently. And uh, I note that uh, uh, none of the cases that have uh, been referred to here today uh, come from democratic countries. They come from the autocracies. Uh, and uh, uh, so I think that our challenge as human beings over in this, in this century, in the 21st century, is going to be trying to figure out how the two groups of, of countries <laughs> exist on this planet without killing each other. Because I think one thing we can all agree on, North Korea, Iran... China, they're not going to change. They're going to be the same for a long, long time to come for the foreseeable future. You, you hope that there's some change, but hope, as we all know, isn't much of a strategy. Uh, and, and the democracies are not going to change. We're not going to change. Great Britain's not going to change. The, the countries that make up those, uh, the, the group of free countries aren't going to change. So the, the, the conduct we're talking about specifically in this, in this hearing is... Our, our small instances, and I say that not to demean them, because when I say small, I mean compared to a war, like what's going on in Ukraine or in Israel. They're, they're a unique, specific incident. They wind up in a newspaper reporting. Everybody reads it and what have you, but they turn the page and move on to sports or something else. So, so how do we deal with these? Uh, from country to country, how, how do we as a country deal with these? Uh, with the countries who perpetrate that and other free countries without going to war over them, obviously. And there needs to be some kind of discipline. There needs to be some kind of accountability. But how do you do that? What, what, what's, 
What's your recommendation in how we deal with these? Let's go down to the ideas just like we started. Mr. Grossoff, would you start? Very briefly, and I've said this before, I would advocate for um, invoking the principle of universal jurisdiction whenever feasible to investigate crimes that otherwise remain uninvestigated because bad actors are not going to investigate themselves. Um, so many countries have the principle of universal jurisdiction. Partly the United States can invoke it. But a crime that happens across several countries outside of the United States and has its core, its basis uh, of an action decided in Moscow can still be pr prosecuted, but it is not at the moment. Everybody delivers the, the benefit of the principle of uh, judicial sovereignty to bad actors. And this is one, one way that it, uh, I think, can be somewhat um, curtailed. But you also pointed out that not every country is in the camp of either the bad actor or the good actor. Some countries are borderline. They're nominally democracies, and they are in many respects democracies, but they sometimes are afraid of taking action against China or Russia because of economic pressures. And those are, are very insidious non-actions sometimes. For example, Bulgaria, Hungary, um, Georgia, the country of Georgia, within certain governments are afraid to prosecute Russian crime or Chinese crime that happens on their territory. And such non-actions actually can be sanctioned, um, can, sanctions can be imposed against the people not prosecuting by the United States. So these are two examples I could see as very practical. I'm, I'm out of time, but Mr., uh, briefly, Mr. Abramowitz. Uh... Thank you for the question. Uh, a couple of points I'd like to make. First of all, I think since Freedom House began reporting on this phenomenon three or four years ago, I think that democratic governments have actually begun to kind of be a, much more aware of the problem and to actually do things about it. Is it perfect? No. But you see uh, law enforcement agencies like uh, the Justice Department, Homeland Security, the FBI, uh, their agents are, are, are being educated about the problem. They're noticing these cases that might not have, they might not have noticed before. Uh, we talk with Western uh, democracies as well. They are really, on, they are really beginning, to, beginning to be much more focused on this issue. There's not like a silver bullet, Senator, with this. I, I think that, uh, you know, we have a, we, in, our, in my testimony, I outlined a range of different things, sanctions, uh, visa bans, you know, this the creation of tip lines for people to tip off law enforcement. This is going to be a, a generational struggle, I think. We're, you know, Russia, as you pointed out, Russia and China are not going anywhere. Other countries are choosing sides now. And I think what's really important is for particularly the United States government and other democracies to make clear that this is unacceptable behavior and to not sweep this under the rug. Uh, so when especially you know, people that are friendly to the United States, I mentioned India and Saudi Arabia, and these are in Saudi Arabia is a significant perpetrator of, 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 of transnational oppression. We've had two big cases that have been outlined from India recently. This should be a matter that is in the bilateral relationship. And, and if it's seen as sweeps, being swept under the rug, then I think other governments will not take it as seriously. Senator Menendez. <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, the People's Republic of China has committed a despicable campaign of genocide against the Uyghur people and has exported its oppression to target ethnic and religious minority groups and their family members globally. 
Since 1997, members of the Uyghur diaspora have experienced the long reach of the PRC's authoritarianism in the form of unprovoked harassment, intimidation, and coercion. Communities in our own nation are victims of China's repression. Mr. Abramowitz, how do China's tactics differ and remain unpublicized compared to other countries when it is the key enabler of transnational repression? Your mic on. Number one, thank you. Uh, number one, the campaign targets many groups, ethnic and religious minorities, political dissidents, human rights activists, journalists, and former insiders. Um, it's the full range of tactics that they use, uh, from direct attacks like kidnapping uh, dissidents, co-opting other countries to detain. Uh, their dissidents, and also in the case of the Uyghurs that you outlined, really threatening their families uh, to get their, uh, their family members who are living in the free world to, uh, to basically uh, shut up. Uh, finally, um, you know, the sheer breadth and global scale of the campaign is, is incredible. And, uh, you know, outspoken members of the Hong Kong diaspora have found themselves in the dragnet, as have many others. So it's really the number one country, the number how does, one perpetrator. How, how can the United States help support governments to combat China's repression of minority groups abroad? And, for example, can Magnitsky sanctions be utilized to hold the perpetrators enabling China's transnational repression accountable? We've certainly been in favor of, of, of the greater use of the, the Magnitsky sanctions to target individual individuals. We think that there can be changes to the law to, uh, uh, to make uh, perpetrators of transnational repression you know, more squarely within the focus of the, of the sanction regime. Uh, I would also say, you know, I think it's very difficult to influence China directly, but China, you know, one of the themes that we've looked at at Freedom House over the last five years is China's efforts to you know, co-opt international fora like the, like the uh, Human Rights Council in Geneva. It's really important for the United States to really combat China's efforts in, in, in fora like that. Uh, Russia imprisons dissenters like Vladimir Karamusa and uh, Alexander Navalny that threaten Putin's power, and it shuts down independent media to control the behavior and flow of information to its citizens. But sadly, Russia's repression doesn't stop within its borders. In 2022, Russia journalist uh, Evangenia Balatatarova fled to Kazakhstan after Russian police searched her house due to her online presence in opposition to Russia's illegal war against Ukraine. Kazakh authorities then detained her when they learned of the criminal charges against her and told her she wasn't allowed to leave Kazakhstan. Mr. Grovas, how, uh, have there been widespread transnational repression activities targeting Russian journalists and media services who move abroad after Russia invaded Ukraine? Yes, I gave example with three, at least three cases where Russian journalists have been targeted uh, or activists have been targeted abroad with assassination attempts, which may have... Uh, uh, intended to just be inconclusive assassination attempts, just to send a, 
uh, a shiver down the spine of other journalists. Women were selected, in my view, specifically because of the terror uh, from a Russian perspective of, of, of the fact that they're not stopping at gender or boundary. Um, and we've seen more attempts than the, than the three, but the three are conclusively linked to chemical weapons that, uh, that we believe um, are only in the hands of Russia. So um, we've seen attempts by Russian authorities to force countries that are nominally democratic to extradite Russians that are in those countries. Kazakhstan is one example, but Bulgaria is another example. Austria is another example. So there are many attempts for judicial um, uh, repression, in addition to the extrajudicial that, that we mentioned earlier. I think we're talking about uh, cases that are definitely close to 100, not just one or two. 100. Yes. Mr. Chairman, if I may, one last question. In November, the Nicaraguan regime applauded the unprecedented win of the first Miss Universe winner and called her win a moment of, quote, legitimate joy and pride. Shortly after, the director of the Miss Nicaragua pageant, Karen Celebretti, was prohibited from returning to Nicaragua, and her husband and son in Nicaragua were detained on accusations of conspiracy dating back to 2018. Clearly, Ortega regime intends to use such tactics to silence all dissenters, both within Nicaragua and abroad. Uh, Mr. Guelas, how should the United States respond to the Ortega regime's intimidation of Karen Celebretti and her family? Uh, as we discussed earlier, we believe that um, sanction uh, tools such as the Magnitsky Act should not be exclusively used to countries like Russia. They can definitely be applied to uh, the context of Nicaragua as well. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Ricketts. Great. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Many Americans believe that the Chinese Communist Party is a, an external threat only. However, this hearing illustrates the long tentacles of authoritarian regimes like the CCP and that it knows no borders. Uh, this became obvious with the revelation that the CCP is operating secret police stations and overseas centers around the world, including here in the United States, to intimidate, threaten, and harass Chinese dissidents. While the case in New York is well known, there are reports that there could be others, including in my home state of Nebraska. This is a flagrant violation of our sovereignty and must be addressed swiftly and forcefully. But as countries have woken up to the threat uh, of these police stations and overseas centers, the CCP has adapted. According to a recent report by Safeguard Defenders, the CCP is running a global network of consular volunteers through its embassies and consulates who form part of the United Front influence to enforce um, operations on foreign soil. These consular volunteers are mostly used to help with administrative tasks linked to consular protection, risk assessments, and even warnings and advisories to overseas citizens and organizations. This gives them the full access to individuals. Personal information may also enhance their control over overseas communities and dissenters. According to the report, none of these liaisons have been declared to host country authorities by the PRC or other relevant actors, let alone, let alone receive consent. While the PRC embassies and consulates have been using these informal networks for at least a decade, they were recently formalized uh, through a state council decree in September. Mr. Abramowitz, in your testimony, you said that host governments and law enforcement officials must pay increasing attention to the role of diplomatic staff and proxy actors working on behalf of the origin um, states to intimidate exiles. What role do these consular volunteers play in enhancing the CCP's ability to conduct transnational rep repression activities? Senator, the honest truth is 
my knowledge on this issue is really from the human rights group that you cited, did very good work on that. It's, it's deeply disturbing. Uh, you know, we were encouraged to see, you know, an April indictment uh, for two PRC nationals arrested on suspicion of uh, operating one such police station in New York. So this issue is beginning to kind of get greater attention. I think the point that I would just simply make is that, you know, the 850 or so cases we've had of physical uh, transnational oppression, you know, the murders, the renditions, so forth, that's just the tip of the iceberg. And countries like China are, in, are, empl are employing surveillance, these police stations, uh, uh, spyware, uh, just all manner of tactics. And, and I think it's, it's a wake-up call for, for the nation. Are there things specifically we can do with regard to these consular volunteers, or how do we work better with our allies on these? Well, I think the one thing that, I would, that comes to mind that I would suggest is that I would say for, if it comes to the attention of the State Department or a foreign ministry in a certain country that a diplomat is behaving outside of the normal diplomat channels, that seems to me grounds for expulsion. In addition to formalizing consular volunteers, other parts of the CCP's new uh, regulations on consular protection could allow it to grow into its capacity to carry out transnational repression. In uh, Article 7 of this State Council uh, new regulation that I mentioned, it states that the PRC embassies can act unilaterally under quote-unquote special circumstances, granted that there is permission from the host country. Under Article 7, it states the PRC embassies um, can, uh, or sorry, Article 3, rather, states the consulates are responsible when, quote, the rights of Chinese nationals are violated or simply if help, help is needed. The PRC might target a Chinese national abroad under almost any pretext, but these are new regulations that could provide formal grounds for the PRC consulates to intervene in overseas private affairs of Chinese nationals, whether they are uh, welcome government support or not. What's your takeaway on this, Mr. Ramos, with regard to these new security rules for embassies and consulates, and are there specific things we should do in light of this new regulation that the State Council and the Chinese government has passed? Let me just ask, if I may, I think my colleague wanted to say one thing on that. Is oh, that sure, absolutely, it? Ms. Gallagher. Of course. Of course. Um, it's just following your question earlier about the overseas police stations and the uh, consular volunteers, just a quick point. Um, when the NGO Safeguard Defenders published their report on Chinese police stations abroad, they received on that day an email purportedly coming from me as an international human rights lawyer in that space saying your report is superb, I'd like to offer you my services pro bono, I'd like to help. And they engaged with that email uh, and after a period of time they started getting asked questions about their sources for the report. And luckily the person who received the email at Safeguard Defenders thought something wasn't quite right and reached out to me through another source and we discovered that it was quite a sophisticated fake. Now that's an example of this kind of privilege fishing that I've been speaking about uh, where people purport to be lawyers, uh, people who are well respected and reach out in that way. Indeed I've had those privilege fishing type emails uh, from people purporting to be staffers uh, to members of the Senate and from people who purport to be partners in US law firms, they're very sophisticated, and it does seem to me there's a very simple step which could be taken in relation to that. The US government, of course, issued a business advisory warning US businesses of emerging risks to their operations and activities in Hong Kong in July 2021. It does seem to me these tactics of transnational repression that are being used, including that example of privilege fishing and purporting to be professionals in order to obtain sensitive information 
which may put people at very serious risk. And that should obviously be the subject of quite clear guidance from the US government, it seems to us, so that people are warned about this tactic. And I, for my part, share the concerns which you raised, as Senator, regarding broadly at this issue. And it does also seem to me, in the US, unusually, there's obviously been uh, criminal justice activity in relation to the overseas police stations. Many, many countries, there was none. There have been very few prosecutions arising from those overseas police stations, which is concerning. Mr. Chairman, may I just I have a follow-up question with Ms. Gallagher? Please do. So on these new uh, regulations the Chinese government state councils put out with regard to the behavior of their consulates and these consular volunteers and so forth, what steps do you think we as the United States and our allies should take with regard to these new regulations that came out? So I, I would ask you, that you respond briefly, if you could. Of course. I, I can give you a more detailed answer on that in writing subsequently, if that would be helpful. Oh, that would be great. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you. Uh, we have a statement from the Sikh Coalition that's well documented, and without objection, it will be made part of the record. Senator Kane. Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman. That's a good segue into my line of questioning. Um, it's one thing to deal with this behavior when it comes from a nation that we would sort of put into the adversary camp, China, Iran, um, others. Uh, but you, Mr. Abramowitz mentioned in particular uh, nations like India, with which we have a strong relationship, or Saudi Arabia, want a democracy, want a monarchy. And I, I want to just focus on how do we deal with this when it is a nation that we're in partnership with. And I want to use India as an example. I'd like to introduce into the record an article from the Wall Street Journal, December 2, foiled plot to kill U.S. Sikh is linked to murder of a Canadian activist. Without objection, be clear. And, and I want to read the first two paragraphs of the letter. I think members of the panel understand this, but I just want to make sure the public does. Hours after a Sikh community leader was assassinated by two masked men in the parking lot of his temple in Canada, a senior Indian security officer sent a drug trafficker he knew a video of the blood-covered victim slumped over in his truck. An hour later, he followed that up with the New York address of another Sikh activist he wanted killed. The trafficker got right on it, according to U.S. prosecutors. He passed on the video and other messages to a purported hitman who had already accepted a $15,000 advance payment for the contract killing on U.S. soil and suggested there could be more such work. Quote, we have so many targets he told the hired gun, who he didn't know was really an undercover U.S. law enforcement officer. That's the case that has been recently brought in federal court in New York, connecting to the murder of the uh, Sikh activist in the suburb of Toronto. And it is highly, highly disturbing, to say the least. Uh, and that quote, we have so many targets, is something we need to pay very serious attention to. It's interesting to note that the Indian government's reaction to the prosecution of the United States has been somewhat different than to the claim that their intelligence officials, at least one official, was implicated in the murder in Toronto. When the Canadian government, Prime Minister Trudeau, raised the issue and laid out the evidentiary case, the Indian government responded in a very negative way and asked Ottawa to recall about 40 Canadian diplomats that were in India. When the news of this prosecution in the United States came out, the Indian government at least suggested they were somewhat concerned and potentially chastened by this story. 
and their comments have been a little bit more reasonable. But we often say we're the oldest democracy in the world and India is the largest democracy in the world. This is not the behavior of a respectable democracy. And I would like you to just use this as an, use the Indian example when we're dealing with a nation that we have such strong connections to. We have military connections, economic connections, connections of, of family. Our Indian American, Indian American diaspora community in the United States is such an important part of who we are uh, as, a, uh, as a country. What are the strategies you suggest that we use in dealing with nations that we traditionally count as friends? Microphone. Sorry, can you that better? Sorry about that. Um, you know, what, what I can say on this, I, I honestly don't know more about these cases than is in the public record so far. This is all coming to light. It strikes me that one thing that's very important is to get more information about India's activities in democracies out there in the open. Uh, that strikes me as something that this body could obtain from uh, you know, sources within the U.S. government, I think, and, 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 to, and to publicize as much as you can. So, you know, get, be transparent about what's going on. Uh, I would say the only other thing that I would add is that if you look at Freedom in the World, which is our, um, you know, canonical mm-hmm. annual survey of, of political rights and civil, civil liberties in the world, uh, you see two broad trends. One is authoritarian countries kind of getting stronger, but you also see backsliding uh, among established democracies. And, and clearly, India is one of the cases that have been where there's been this kind of backsliding. So the kind of overseas activities that you are alluding to is also part of uh, uh, a backsliding, a democratic backsliding. Thank you. And just one last comment. I want to thank Ms. Gallagher for being here representing my profession, the legal profession. Um, the targeting of lawyers who represent political dissidents, human rights activists, is a, is a long-time strategy. Um, there's a case decided by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1963, NAACP v. Button, that came out of Virginia when Virginia tried to pass both criminal statutes and ethical rules to stop lawyers from taking on school desegregation cases. And when, when, when dictators want to go after political dissidents, they usually start with the lawyers, but it never ends there. Thank you for your work. I yield back, Mr. Chair. Senator Van Hollen. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank, thank all of you for your, your testimony here today. And to Ms. Gallagher, let me just um, thank you for your ongoing uh, work with Jimmy Lai. Uh, a couple years ago, Senator Toomey, former Senator Toomey, and I teamed up, and we passed the Hong Kong Accountability Act uh, to provide the executive branch with more tools uh, to go after both Chinese government officials as well as folks in Hong Kong. Uh, who are cracking down on dissent, and I ple- I'm pleased it's been used. Obviously, we need to, to do a lot um, more on, on that front. Um, Mr. Abramowitz, great to see you. Uh, let me thank you for all you are doing at Freedom House. Um, and in your testimony, you say, for too long, democracies have missed or allowed the actions of authoritarian countries inside their borders. Such a pattern of impunity has emboldened states to act abroad without fear of consequences. Uh, and that, of course, is what we're focused on in this hearing. Uh, there is a little-known provision in the Arms Export Control Act that prohibits arms transfers to any countries that are, quote, 
engaged in a consistent pattern of acts of intimidation or harassment directed against individuals in the United States. Not just citizens, not just green card holders, individuals in the United States. Uh, now, some of the countries we're talking about today are countries we obviously don't sell arms to in any form, China, Russia, Iran, uh, but there are many governments out there that are engaged in this kind of intimidation and harassment of uh, individuals on U.S. soil who are. So would you agree that we should use all of the tools at our disposal? Because a October GAO report just came out, indicated that this provision of law has actually never been used. So one of the things we're looking at is requiring the administration uh, to come forward with a report identifying which countries would trigger this provision. Is that something you would support? Uh, I would be, what I, what, I'm, what I can commit to, Senator, is I can have my staff look at the proposal and we can come back to you with a considered answer on that. I mean, the one thing that comes to mind uh, in your question is that one of the key tools of transnational oppression is the use of spyware. Uh, that's something that has been done uh, by a number of different countries, and I think uh, there was an executive order uh, earlier this year. I'm going to get to that. That's my next question. Oh, okay. Anticipated. Uh, uh, but, uh, my, my, my point being is that I think really being careful about exporting spyware to those countries that could use it as part of transnational oppression strikes me as a Right, as but a, this is a, a provision I, I gather, I'm not sure, I, I don't think anybody was really focused on this provision. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's embedded in our law, yes. and I'm going to be working to make sure that we reactivate it or activate it since it's never been activated. Well, we'll have my team. It's not an automatic tool. Yep. It doesn't require cutting off arms transfers, but it's a, a, a tool that the executive branch has never used. Uh, so I look forward to working with um, folks on that. Let me talk about the spyware issue because um, it is a very important issue. You mentioned in your testimony. You just mentioned it now. Um, of course, NSO technology uh, was used to go after Khashoggi, uh, specifically uh, targeting his uh, fiance. Uh, we also know that in addition to NSO technology, there's been this predator software uh, that's been used. So the administration has taken some actions, uh, but this is the tool, these are the tools of choice um, of authoritarian governments and other governments. Uh, some of who've been mentioned today that uh, uh, are our close friends um, that use to, to go to either go after distance themselves or these are companies that sell their wares in many cases to uh, authoritarian governments and other governments. What what more can we be doing to make sure that the tool, these tools of choice sold by private companies um, can't be abused in this way? In fact, the, the, it turns out the predator. Uh, software was used to target a couple members of Congress right. uh, recently. So can you just speak to this? I mean, I think it's a very serious problem that you're raising. I think that, uh, you know, two things that come to mind. Number one is the U.S. government can give, you know, extra scrutiny uh, to applications from companies uh, that are seeking to export products to uh, those countries where that may be engaging in transnational oppression, the, the so-called unfree countries or uh, that, that would be one thing that I think, you know, extra scrutiny to these applications. I think that governments can look at the research done by Freedom House and, and other human rights groups uh, to look at those countries that, you know, could be qualified for that. I don't think, I think it's a big secret. Um, and uh, I think 
the, to the extent that export controls exist, they need to be carefully and thoroughly uh, 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 enforced. It's not, it's not a silver bullet. No, I understand. It's not just the, the countries, though. Right now, we just have lots of private entities yes. uh, that are engaged in these kind of activities. So it seems to me we need to do a much better job of figuring out how we target them and that ecosystem, to the extent their, their software is being used by foreign governments to crack down on, on dissidents. And um, obviously, there are important good uses, like for the U.S. government to have surveillance technology. But this is a very different use of those technologies. So um, I, I, I see that I'm out of time. But I, I I'd like want to, to commit to my team. We'll get back to you with a thoughtful response on that question. I think it's an important issue. Thank you. Uh, yeah. I'd also like to add something on spyware. I can add more detail in writing. But I've also, through my previous work prior to acting for Mr. Lai, uh, it, those technologies have been used against me in relation to cases that I've done in respect of Saudi Arabia um, and a number of other countries. And it does seem to me one of the key issues, as well as the issue of export licensing applications, is the protection of end-to-end -end encryption. Because increasingly what I see, which is concerning, is a naive notion that somehow you can have a backdoor in relation to end-to-end -end encryption, which good actors can use and bad actors can't. And it's very concerning. And I think that's an issue that we need to flag as well. I know it's referred to briefly in the Freedom House report that's been published today. So you protecting end-to-end -end encryption? Protecting yes. end-to-end encryption. But that's a key yeah, for part. dissidents. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a very important point. Thank you. Thanks, Mr. Chairman. Certainly. Senator Merkley. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. And, and Mr. Abramowitz, thank you for the work of Freedom House. If we were just kind of ballpark estimating between the year 2000 and two, 2023, the increase in transnational repression actions within the United States, how would you characterize that? I, it's hard for me to give you. I mean, what I can tell you is the facts. You know, we, we've 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 documented this since 2014. Uh, we've documented 850 different cases. Uh, we'll be out in January with an update uh, to our report. I expect there to be many, many more cases. I mean, this is a very old tactic. Dates, you know, the murder of Trotsky in in Mexico is. <laughs> But, 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 but I think what I, what I would say is that the conditions are, and, the, and the belligerence of the authoritarian countries is just definitely increasing. Well, it certainly uh, uh, anecdotally has in, in, in the impression is a, a massive uh, uh, increase. And um, one of the uh, top actors, the top actor, according to Freedom House, is uh, uh, China. And on our Congressional Executive Commission on China, which I co-chair, we've had a lot of examination of this. And we realize that very few incidents get reported. But those that do get reported can, can range from someone walking up to a, a, a Chinese-American or a Chinese national in America and saying just simply, we know who your family are back in China and walking away. Or it might be an email that says that or a text message that says that. And um, I've been pressing for the FBI to develop a much better system that and publicity in trying to collect information about these incidents. And of course, there's a trust factor that has to be established. People are uh, afraid to report. Do you have any recommendations on, on how we can see more of the iceberg that is uh, hidden from us about the extent of transnational repression going on, suppressing freedom of assembly, freedom of speech here in the United States? Well, I would say two things. Number one, I think codify a definition of this so that everyone knows 
what you're talking about, and then directing the uh, law enforcement agencies to, to collect that information. I think they already are doing that to some extent, but I think, as, as, as my testimony indicated, we're at the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, they're collecting very, very little. Uh, and in fact, the FBI, when I have uh, repeatedly approached them, says, well, we're just going to tell people uh, to call our, our national tip line, which is a tip line for everything in the world. Um, there has to be some type of higher trust portal, Chinese language speaking, uh, assurances of, uh, to communities that their information is highly protected, uh, and so forth. At least that's certainly what I've been hearing from others. I guess, would you share that perspective? In general, yes. I think that, uh, I, I, I just will say that we've, my team has spent a lot of time over the last couple of years briefing out the findings of our research to different law enforcement agencies. There's a huge appetite of information because I think many uh, individual agents, you know, they'll see a case and it seems like a uh, isolated case, but in fact, it's part of a larger national and global story. And so I think anything we can do to paint that larger picture would be very valuable. Well, I do uh, appreciate that you highlighted the act uh, that uh, a number of us have put together, including the chairman and Senator Haggerty, uh, and um, the, 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 the chairman now pursuing a broader bill or a, I guess, maybe more targeted bill, but uh, to take on transnational president. I think this is such an important, growing uh, 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 challenge. And um, in that context, I think many are, would be surprised to find that Turkey is among the top five offenders. Turkey, a NATO ally. Um, Given that we have so many dynamics uh, that interact with Turkey, including a military base there, common NATO membership, and so forth, what more can we do to, uh, to bring an end to or dramatically diminish transnational repression by Turkey? Well, as you suggest, Turkey has been on a campaign since the 2016 coup to hunt down uh, and track uh, its critics who are living abroad. I think it's very important for the United States to assist victims. I think it's important to, 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 to not deport people back to the, uh, uh, to the country of origin. I think it's a very hard challenge. We have other security interests with Turkey. You know, one thing I would just like to say, which I haven't had a chance to say today, is I think there is one silver lining to this whole situation, and it's a terrible situation, but I do think that Americans and others because of the publicity and the greater publicity of this problem, are beginning to see the nature of authoritarian regimes. So what, they understand that what happens in China is not just happening in China anymore. What's happening in Russia is not just happening in Russia anymore. You know, the, 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 the rights of people inside democracies are directly at threat because of this. They're free speech rights, as one of my colleagues just said. So I think it's a very important point. So I think anything we can do to get more information out about the, about the size of this uh, phenomenon is really important. I'll just close by noting that among the recommendations you had was for us to provide permanent legal protection to human rights defenders, to journalists who are under attack, and I certainly would second that. Thank you very much. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to each of you for being here and for your ongoing work. Um, Mr. Abramovitz, in your opening statement, you mentioned Belarus, I believe, as one of the top ten countries that is um, behaving in a a way that um, promotes transnational crime. Uh, yesterday, I had an opportunity to meet with Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, who is here, 
Um, she is, I think most of us believe she is the real leader of Belarus, having won that election against Lukashenko in 2020. Um, her husband has been in prison since that time for his effort to try and challenge Lukashenko, and she was recently sentenced in absentia to 15 years in prison. Um, so one of... Can you talk about, and, and I would ask each of you on the panel if you have thoughts about this, about um, whether you see regimes like Lukashenko working with um, the Kremlin mimicking what Putin has done, or um, are these efforts by authoritarian leaders to work together to deploy intimidation tactics and um, do all of the detentions, acts of violence, all of the things that you all have outlined? Well, first of all, thank you for that question. We actually at Freedom House yesterday welcomed Natalia Pinchuk, the, uh, right. the wife of the Nobel Prize winner, Mr. Bialyatsky, uh, to Freedom House. Uh, yes, I a, had a chance to meet with her as It's well. a heart-rendering story. There not just her husband, who's in a penal colony, but 1,500 other Belarusian political prisoners. Uh, the point that I would simply make is that the autocrats are learning from each other. Putin was the original kind of modern-day... Uh, uh, autocrat and his tactics are being copied by uh, other autocrats, including Lukashenko and including the most, one of the most brazen cases of transnational oppression, you know, the, the, the forcing down of the airplane uh, right. so he could arrest the, the blogger. Um, do either of the other panelists I, have thoughts I, on this? I would completely um, agree um, with uh, Mr. Bramovich. It's a copycat uh, situation, especially with uh, Lukashenko. Um, although he was uh, chronologically before Putin, uh, created his model before Putin. But what has to be clear is that there's no um, assumed collaboration between them. There is actually a lot of distrust, and this is something that can be used in thinking how to, uh, how to uh, maybe topple this, this autocracy on a smaller scale. Now, uh, Russia does not trust Lukashenko's uh, own... Um, uh, loyalty forever. And Lukashenko himself does not trust that Russia will not overtake Belarus and make him just a figurehead. This is an important discord that is not, it's latent, it's, it's under the surface. We've seen evidence of this um, on the surface, for example, when uh, Lukashenko arrested 33 Russian mercenaries thinking that they were sent by the Kremlin to topple him just before the elections 2020. This is a good example of the paranoia that is in his head. There's um, occasional collaboration between the intelligence services, but there's generally distrust. And we've seen cases where Russia has sent their own agents to actually watch over what Lukashenko says, what member of his government says at certain press conferences, because they do not trust him. And again, this is an opportunity as much as a threat. Thank you. Ms. Gallagher, I, I actually have a different question for you because I think you suggested the idea of a special envoy for transnational repression. Um, and I, I'm not sure which of you talked about um, improper detentions, illegal detentions of American citizens. And having worked on some of those early cases and helping to develop legislation around creating a fusion cell here to support um, victims of that kind of repression. Can you talk about what more we ought to be thinking about in terms of supporting victims, um, not just going after the perpetrators, but what can we do to support victims and their families? And I, I really 
like the idea of the special envoy. I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, well, first of all, thank you very much for the uh, very important work that you've done in this space. Uh, unfortunately, in my work, I often deal with um, journalists, human rights defenders, pro-democracy activists, bloggers, cartoonists, who are arbitrarily detained by authoritarian regimes for doing their work. Um, and one of the difficulties you have is that you can't, as a lawyer, use the usual legal tools you have because you're dealing with a regime which doesn't play by the rules. These are not rule of law compliant countries. And one of the things where I think the US has shown real leadership is in centralizing its learning in those cases. I do think the special envoy works very well. Um, I met with him recently and indeed I understand he's in the UK today giving evidence. There's no equivalent role in the UK. So what I see time and again in the UK is the complete blank sheet when you have a case like this, which is very problematic. The other issue that we have, and Jimmy Lai is a good example of this, is uh, that sometimes there is a lack of awareness that when you're dealing with Hong Kong, for example, uh, you are dealing with a regime which is now in the same category as Iran, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, these kind of cases. Uh, I do think in respect to victims, one of the real problems that I see, and this is, I see it in uh, the UK, but also Australia and a number of other jurisdictions, there's a real lack of aftercare for victims. So quite often what you have is someone who's been subjected to arbitrary detention, the most horrendous violation of their rights, often in circumstances where they're in solitary confinement, they may have been subjected to torture and so on. When they return, the support drops off a cliff. So sometimes they're provided with very initial support from a psychiatrist or psychologist, uh, but the gap is then filled ordinarily by civil society organizations um, or by fundraising, and that's a very serious problem, and I think that's one obvious area. I should also just say on the playbook question uh, that you asked my colleagues, um, I think that what I'm increasingly seeing in my work and the patterns that I'm seeing is, and Belarus is a good example, whether it's working directly with the Kremlin or just simply copying the tactics, we're now seeing that there is a dictator's playbook and mechanisms which are used which are effective in transnational repression are inevitably going to be um, spreading and used by others. And it's one of the reasons why it's such a high political priority to deal with China, who we all agree uh, is the most serious actor in this space, the most sophisticated actor in this space. And unless we treat that as the political priority, which it deserves to be, we will see those tactics spreading, picked up by others, in the way that we saw Russia's tactics picked up by Belarus uh, most um, graphically with that example of Roman uh, Protasevich uh, being hijacked in a Ryanair plane and forcibly brought within jurisdiction. Mr. Chairman, can I ask one more question for the panel? One of the, since you're, We've, you've all mentioned China. One of the things that we're seeing happening in China is an extensive collection of DNA um, by the Chinese. Are there ways in which you're concerned that they're going to use this database to promote the kind of um, transnational repression that you all are talking about? How do you see that working, or, or is that totally different than what you think we're dealing with now. I think as we look at AI and the prospects for AI in the future, that this is an area that we ought to be thinking about. Senator, all I can say is that we are deeply concerned just in general about the quote-unquote bad uses of technology. We just put out a report at Freedom House. We did an annual survey of uh, online rights. And what was very interesting about the report was it showed that, number one, traditional 
repression, censorship is increasing online, but also AI is now being used to kind of turbocharge human rights violations, to uh, spread disinformation, to uh, make it easier for the authorities to censor. So I think, in general, that's very concerning, and, and the, the collection of that kind of database <laughs> sounds disturbing we can, to me as well. Any other thoughts about that? I would, uh, again, hypothetically and analytically, I would imagine that it would contribute to the tool set of uh, transnational oppression and repression, for example, uh, by the inability of um, good governments to offer protection to, uh, with the usual traditional methods of witness protection, for example, because that, the one biometric that you cannot change is DNA. You can change the face, you can change uh, the fingerprints, but you cannot change the DNA. So theoretically, the Chinese government could use that to verify the identity of their enemies even after they've received protection. And of course, I agree with the comments about theoretically what, how it could be used. I don't have any comments specifically on that issue or that database uh, simply because it's not within my area of expertise, sure. uh, but I'd be happy to look at it if helpful. I would say just generally that I think it's right that you're raising the question because I think in relation to China, what we've seen is increasingly creative use of lawfare, weaponization of the law, increasingly creative use of technology in order to extend the long arm of the state to target people internationally, wherever around the world they may be. And it does seem to me that quite often we respond to that in a firefighting way, in a defensive, responsive way. And uh, I mentioned earlier the enemies of freedom being creative. It's time for us to get creative too. It does seem to me that we should be preemptively thinking about what their next moves may be. So I welcome the question, although I can't give you a specific answer on it. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Senator Kane, I was going to ask if you had anything further. Uh, once again, let me thank our, our witnesses. It's clear to us that transnational regression, there's the victim. And we're obviously concerned about the individual that has been victimized by these actions. But it's also compromising the ability of the nation in which that person comes from, from having the type of participation that's necessary for that country's growth. And then there's also the concerns it has on our own democracies, because it denies us the opportunity to hear different views, and it, it compromises our own country. And we see over and over again that democratic institutions are used by our adversaries for their own advantage. This is another example where they're using our open system to gain information, to supply disinformation. Uh, in order to advance th their causes. Uh, the, the discussions that took place just recently on the AI, for the, you may not be aware, but all, every senator is going through AI 101, 102, 103, and 104. I think the last classes are this week. Uh, and we are looking at how we can get a handle on AI from a regulatory, from a government regulatory point of view, not to stop technology, but the deal, as Mr. Obama said, the bad actors and what you're seeing out there, how can we try to bring this in? So I, this is just an open invitation to all three of you. Uh, as we go through this process, if you see a role that we can play in Congress in the regulation of AI as it relates to this issue, don't hesitate to, to supply that information to us. This committee has some jurisdiction over 
potential bill that will be coming out next year. There's going to be some individual bills coming out on urgent issues, but the general bill we expect to come out next year. Please give us that, because I w would welcome uh, uh, provisions that could help us deal with this current challenge. Uh, the record of the committee will remain open until close of business tomorrow for those that might have questions. You already have a few questions that you, that you volunteered to answer, Mr. Gallagher. We appreciate that very much. But uh, for, so the record will remain open for the questions, and then we would ask that you, to the extent the questions are asked, that you try to get replies to us in a timely way. And in concluding this again, to, to thank the three of you for your contribution uh, to these issues, to your willingness to take on an incredible challenge, and in, uh, in, in some cases, personal risks, including, uh, as has been pointed out, not only the, the individual here, Mr. Grossoff, your challenge, but Mrs. Gallagher as a lawyer, it's, uh, you're at risk as well. And, Mr. Bromwitz, people sometimes go after the adversary groups, the groups that are trying to get the information out there. So we recognize these are challenging times. So thank you again. With that, the hearing will stand adjourned.